a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the program, my fellow wrong thinker. So glad you could join me today. And so much ground that we have to cover. Let's dive right in. Uh, You probably heard the joke by now. Who's the highest paid person at both CNN and The Washington Post? That, of course, would be Nick Sandman. Remember the young man accused of smiling while white at the Lincoln Memorial last year? Yeah, that was quite a story in and of itself. And, of course, uh, this is something that has, has been in, in a number of people's minds. When, when it was first reported, you remember the kid wearing the Make America Great Again hat? This was during a, uh, a pro-life protest a year ago, January, at the Lincoln Memorial. There were other groups that were in attendance, including the black Hebrew Israelites, which, by the way, one of the nastiest, most racist, and and just awful groups of people you'll ever meet. And I say this based on their behavior, because they spent their time just harassing people and and just trying to provoke fights and, and condemning people using the, the, the worst language possible, including the uh, activist uh, Native American who walked up to Nick Sandman and other Covington High School students while banging his drum. Yeah, the uh, the black Hebrew Israelites were the ones going after this guy, calling him uh, all kinds of names and telling him the reason God took away your land is, you know, because you worship the wrong things. Anyway, the, and under the new rules of political correctness, that isn't what we were supposed to notice. What we were supposed to notice, according to CNN and the Washington Post, among other media outlets, was the fact that a white... 17-year-old young man wearing a Donald Trump hat that says Make America Great Again stood there smiling, peacefully, if not a bit puzzled, as this Native American elder walked up there banging his drum in this young man's face. You remember? Do you remember how the, uh, how the journalists reacted? Oh, yeah, people were just determined. This is the most punchable face in America, and, and uh, they, they wanted to destroy the guy. The kid got death threats for crying out loud. Well, Nick Sandman is uh, is having the last laugh. Not that he set out to to laugh at anybody's expense in the first place. You know, those who jumped on the original narrative, which, by the way, included some of his own Catholic leaders. Well, we got to distance ourselves. This is bad PR. And they were very quick to throw him under the bus. But anybody who watched the two-hour video, coincidentally filmed by the black Hebrew Israelites, they put it up, I guess, for bragging rights. It showed a very different thing than what the media was portraying. And that was Nick, as well as other members of that uh, teenage group, were not the aggressors, nor were they being offensive to anyone. And somewhere out there, a great lawyer stepped up and, uh, well, went after the media outlets that libeled Nick Sandman. Now, Nick just turned 18 years old. He has settled a $250 million lawsuit with CNN and with The Washington Post. Now, I'm sure they, they won't allow him to disclose the terms of that settlement. Let's just say he doesn't have to work another day in his life if he doesn't want to. John Zmirak, writing for thestream.org, says he was prepping Robert Oscar Lopez's powerful piece on Mike Adams 
for publication. And I just I only learned about Mike Adams a few days ago. He's a, uh, a writer who committed suicide uh, fairly recently over things that he had written more than 20 years ago that were considered insensitive by today's standards, which if you've been paying attention, you know, um, anything could be considered insensitive. Because the standards are constantly shifting and what was perfectly acceptable and non-offensive even a couple of weeks ago is suddenly, you know, heresy and, you know, time to burn the heretic at the stake. John Zmirich says, as he readied this piece for publication, he says, I realized something chilling regarding how the left had hounded that talented writer, Mike Adams, to suicide. He says, I heard in my head the media headline that never ran. Thanks be to God. Racist ringleader Nicholas Sandman dead at 17. Now, that may seem like a really sensational thing to say, but he says that's what the media mob wanted. They as good as admitted it. When powerful reporters call a young man's face the most punchable in America, that's what they mean. When columnists and activists propose doxing him, contacting every college he ever applies to or a job he tries to get, that's what he that's what they mean. When Sandman's own Catholic bishop threw him to the wolves, when his school suspended him, when conservative columnists at the National Review and other venues denounced him as bigoted, they were writing him off for life. They were branding him on his face with the most destructive charge available in America, the charge that's now burning cities and getting Trump supporters murdered. Smiling for white. Smiling while white, rather. And, and the question that's asked here is, for what crime exactly? Why were people so determined to destroy Nicholas Sandman? For waiting for a bus after a pro-life demonstration and smiling while white. For standing his ground when some Indian tribal elder confronted him with a war drum. Ah, oh, but Sandman and his friends were supposed to give way. They should have taken a knee, maybe flattened themselves to form a human red carpet so the tribal elder could walk all over them. You know, like the cops in Portland and Chicago apparently are ordered to do in the face of violent mobs. One leftist after another pointed out Sandman's unforgivable sin, that he was smiling. He didn't look terrified or guilt-struck or even enraged. He was calm, confident, and amiable. Perhaps those character traits are now part of white privilege, as the the Smithsonian now explains. John Zmerich says, I read at least a dozen columnists or reporters who've expatiated expatiated on that smile, comparing Sandman to settlers who slaughtered Indians or concentration camp guards. You do remember this, right? He's not making this up. This is this is how the media, or at least many media outlets, treated this young man by jumping on the bandwagon before they actually had taken the time to ascertain the facts. Now, the writer here says Mike Adams' crime was similar He wrote with verve and humor. He seemed like a happy warrior. He didn't cave at false charges or wallow in synthetic guilt, nor twist himself into pretzels, as timid conservatives do, who were eager to placate the crocodiles by feeding them someone else, someone like Nick Sandman, or like pro-life stalwart Representative Steve King, whom fellow conservatives turned on and turned out of Congress based on false charges of racism. The source, an unrecorded interview with a New York Times reporter. Now the Times wouldn't uh, butcher a conservative congressman's vote. Quote, rather, you say to yourself, why, it's the newspaper of record. It told us all about Donald Trump's, ter- Donald Trump's career, rather, as a Russian agent, didn't it? Or how about stream columnist Mark Judge, who for some reason isn't winning a $250 million defamation lawsuit against the network that accused him of leading a teenage gang rape. Instead, he's eking out a living when he can. 
not one of the deep-pocketed conservative groups that fundraised over helping to back Brett Kavanaugh are willing to give this talented writer a job. His crime? He went to high school with Kavanaugh, and he published the memoir that the left used as a story Bible for Christine Blasey Ford's perjury. That's where they got all the realistic-sounding details she repeated. You see, he admitted in the memoir that teenage alcoholism had caused him memory lapses, and that made Judge the perfect patsy, since if called before the Senate to testify, he couldn't convincingly refute the false charges against him. Are you certain, Mr. Judge, that you and Judge Kavanaugh never gang-raped anyone? You yourself have admitted. Or Burt Trammell, a black Trump supporter, murdered this weekend in Milwaukee. As the New York Post reported, because of Trammell's well-known political activism and the possibility that his murder could be politically motivated, I respectfully request that United States Attorney Matthew Kruger open an investigation, said Andrew Hitt, chairman of the Republican Party of Wisconsin, late Friday. When mayors turn their cities over to violent mobs and only keep police around to disarm honest citizens, that's what happens to people on the wrong side of the mob. And the warning here is expect much more such murders soon. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment and tell you, I don't want to believe this. I don't want to believe what John Zmirak is saying. But my gut tells me he's right. And I feel like this, this is a warning that needs to be sounded, even though it probably doesn't uh, fit easily into your ears or it doesn't feel soft in your ears. Zmirak says, if Nick Sandman had smiled in 2020... If he had smiled just one year later, the outcome may have been much different. Why did the left's bullets miss him last year? After all, you had that gang of rabid anti-white radicals, not Black Lives Matter, but the unhinged black Hebrew Israelites taunting, cursing, and threatening the Covington boys for more than an hour. This is all on video. The Indian tribal elder apparently joined in on the BHI's side. But none of that would excuse Sandman for smiling while white, of course. But through some divine intervention, one of the BHI thugs videotaped the whole encounter and then posted it online. That's how we know what really happened. And the raw footage showed just how crudely CNN and others had doctored their accounts of the confrontation. No, the teens hadn't crowded or mobbed or surrounded the tribal elder. He marched up into their faces banging a war drum. They just simply stood their ground. And that was enough to flip the narrative surrounding Mr. Sandman. But would it be enough today? Because today, those black cult members would feel emboldened to simply attack him and his friends. And the police, badgered and threatened, would be far away, standing down at the mayor's orders. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to remind you, you can always find a complete issue of show notes, including articles that I don't have time to get to in the broadcast or podcast portion of the program. You'll find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just go down to the show notes. It's very easy to find, and you'll find plenty of material to keep you entertained or at least better informed throughout the day. I've been sharing an article here. Uh, this is from John Zmirak. And it's titled, Nick Sandman Wasn't Supposed to Survive. He was meant to end up like Mike Adams. Mike Adams was a writer who uh, apparently, I, I, the way they describe him, he sounds like a kind of guy I would have really enjoyed reading. I mean, some of my favorite writers were blunt 
not offensive, not, you know, overly provocative, but just willing to speak the truth and call it as they saw it. And and yet to, that was enough that the left hounded this this uh, Mike Adams till he killed himself. And it's it's a, a terrible tragedy. Now, the, the case of Nick Sandman turned out a little bit different. Nick Sandman actually ended up settling uh, a $250 million lawsuit against CNN and the Washington Post. But in John Smirak's article here, he makes a point that I think is worth considering. And this is the part that's it, it's hard for me because I don't want to believe it. I don't want to accept that this could be true. But my gut tells me it probably is true. And therefore, we should be paying attention. And that is... If the Covington boys had been confronted by these black Hebrew Israelites or by the culture, the cancel culture mob this year, as opposed to a year ago, there's a very good chance they would have suffered violence. And had they suffered violence, the the chances are very good that no TV network would have said a word about it. It would have been a footnote, you know, in some, you know, major city paper. And that's it. And what Zmirak is suggesting here is that's where we stand in 2020. And I know you're thinking, and I'm thinking, well, but I'm not, uh, you know, Nick Sandman. I'm not Mike Adams. I'm not somebody, I'm nobody of importance. They're not going to come for me. And that's where we would be wrong. John Zmirak says, you know, I wish Mr. Sandman well. I advise him, take your money and go move somewhere sane. Like Poland, maybe start a Catholic college there. Because the leftists who dug up Adams' columns from 20 years ago to goad him to his grave certainly aren't finished with Nick Sandman. They can't forgive his innocence. They cannot forgive his victory or his smile. And so they're coming for him. And they're coming for me. And they'll come for you and your kids. And that's the part that's very bitter to consider. There is no place to hide. There's no place where you can count on, well, they'll leave me alone if I just, you know, sit it out over here. Not going to happen. Now, John Zmerich's advice is, he says, get yourself to the gun range. Make friends there. Organize local militias to step in when the police, afraid for their pensions, meekly disband. We don't need two Americans like the McCloskeys in St. Louis, but two million or ten million. That's the only way this madness ends. Now, if that sounds like a call to violence to you, I'm going to ask you to reconsider, because I don't think that is a call to violence. I think that is a call to organize yourselves so as better to prevent violence. And I'm not saying that, boy, there's got to be this massive militia movement nationwide. I'm suggesting that maybe it starts with something as simple as start talking to your neighbors and get organized with your neighbors so that you can look out for one another. Did you hear what I said? I did not say so. You can start a citizen militia. I said so you can look out for one another. Now, you may have noticed in some of the cities where uh, the, the violence in the streets and the mob that has been going crazy for weeks and weeks on end, where the police have been powerless to stop them, mainly because they've been ordered, don't do anything about this. People are having to organize themselves. I mean, look at the gun sales in this country just this year. Record setting doesn't even begin to cover it. And people who are just now making the realization that, uh, you know what, the police can't protect me. I don't know if you saw the um, letter from the Seattle police chief to the residents there. But it simply said, we're not going to send officers into harm's way without the proper equipment to protect them. They don't have a duty to go and put their lives on the line just to defend property. 
So that means that if you find yourself in mortal danger, guess who bears the primary responsibility for protecting what's near and dear to you? That would be a responsibility that's on your shoulders and my shoulders. And it's not the kind of thing that you can just, you know, suddenly rise to the occasion, you know, in the moment, having never given a thought to preparation. Skill at arms takes time and it takes effort. It takes money, which is one of the reasons why a lot of people, oh, that's an expensive habit or an expensive hobby. But it also takes organization. Anybody who thinks they're going to lone wolf their McQuaid through whatever it is that that we are facing in terms of our societal breakdown is deluding themselves. Individuals, I don't care how skilled they are, you could be John Rambo. Eventually you will be you'll be overwhelmed and you'll be picked off. And I understand how apocalyptic this sounds. And, I, and, and there's a part of me that's almost ashamed for even having to say such words. But I say them because I believe that there is relevance. I believe that there is uh, the time to prepare is right now while you have the luxury of relative calm. And you're not, you know, trying to, to protect your life or protect your home from an angry mob. Get to know your neighbors. Learn how to work together. Get the skills together to, to put together a neighborhood protection plan, not just from rampaging mobs, but from fire, from famine, from, you know, what would we do if the electricity was off for a, an extended period of time? Know that you could work with other people and then really look out for one another. No matter how apocalyptic that may sound on the surface, at the end, it comes down to learning to be great human beings, regardless of your circumstances. And occasionally throughout human history, even great people in first world countries find themselves in circumstances they never could have anticipated. You may have to go back to about uh, the mid-1930s to see a lot of this, um, how it played out through uh, a lot of Europe. But that was the case then. And I don't know that uh, we're we're going to get off scot-free in our time. Some of the stuff I see on the horizon is pretty intense, to put it mildly. All right. I'm going to shift gears now, and I wish I were just shifting into something really, really happy and uh, feel good, but I want to talk a little bit about COVID-19, and, and I don't have to tell you, this is possibly the most politicized disease that any of us have seen in our lifetimes. Have you ever seen people try harder to score points over a virus? And, and the biggest thing right now is that these doctors who held a press conference out in front of the Supreme Court, oh my goodness. The social media censors are in full cry. How dare you? How can anybody possibly give any credence to this? You know, Trump is the one who, who's encouraging them, and they're saying this hydroxychloroquine, it works, and blah, blah, blah. And, and the, the outrage is palpable. And I have to ask myself, why are they so worked up? And my friend Eric Mutsos, I think, pointed out there's two problems with uh, hydroxychloroquine. These are big problems. One is Donald Trump says, hey, it looks like it works. The second is... It costs $10. <laughs> All I know is there is a lot of political uh, jockeying back and forth on this. And there's an article by Paul Gottfried. This is published on intellectualtakeout.org that asks the question, will COVID disappear if Biden becomes president? Now, if that sounds a little bit nutty, I, I get it. You know, well, that sounds pretty conspiratorial. But listen to what he says here. He says, watching the way COVID-19 has become a political football, especially for the Democratic Party, one must wonder about its possible value under a Joe Biden presidency. 
He says, raising this question is by no means an endorsement of Donald Trump for president, particularly as I've expressed critical views about the president's loose tongue and incoherent, insulting tweets more than once. But he says, I wonder why Democrats once treated the epidemic as a false alarm sounded by a hated chief executive to increase his power. Joe Biden, for example, railed against Trump's travel bans as driven by xenophobia and racism. In March, Democratic leaders like New York Mayor Bill de Blasio were urging their partisans to eat in crowded restaurants. But then the signals changed. Democratic leaders stumbled on the insight that the rising infection rate could benefit their party. And thereafter, Democratic governors ordered extensive lockdowns while making exponential exceptions for abortion centers, cannabis distributors, and rampaging mobs of peaceful protesters. You know the rest. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, we are back. Welcome to The Brian Hyde Show, my fellow wrong thinker. I'm sharing with you an article from intellectualtakeout.org. This is written by Paul Gottfried asking the question, will COVID disappear if Biden becomes president? And that doesn't really seem that loaded a question to me. After all, you think about how how this issue has been politicized. And is it not clear that particularly the Democrats, although I think I could make the case, too, that some Republicans are using this issue to uh, to try to build political support for themselves in the upcoming election. And as Paul Godfrey points out, although Democratic governors in the Northeast placed aged covid victims in nursing homes, causing thousands of deaths among the most vulnerable, this catastrophic blunder caused no loss of popularity. In fact, in the case of Governor Cuomo in New York, the media did such a transformative job on his performance that despite being responsible for 6,000 deaths from filling nursing homes with COVID carriers, he became the very face of the anti-COVID crusade overnight. Democratic governors also began issuing stringent orders for social distancing and the wearing of protective masks. And judging by national polls, this strategy has worked along with extensive media assistance. American voters seem to believe that Joe Biden, who's hardly left his basement in months and who's routinely photographed with a mask covering his entire face, is the perfect leader to address the COVID crisis. Although Donald Trump has taken energetic measures to deal with the epidemic, he's still widely perceived as being indifferent, probably because he does not describe COVID as an existential existential threat. Only 35% of Americans, according to polling, have any faith in the president responding adequately to the pandemic. Now, Paul Gottfried points out there is no evidence that he has not, not that his Democratic opponent would do any better. And it seems Democrats have been successful in turning their earlier position on its head, and with the assistance of the ever-obliging media, they have come out ahead. Now, this dramatic about-face raises an important question. What will the position of the Democratic faithful, particularly the media, be if they pull off a victory in the upcoming presidential race. So Paul Gottfried suggests there are two courses. One would be to make the epidemic go away by not mentioning it for a while. When a vaccine is ready for distribution, then Joe Biden or the acting president, Stacey, Liz, Kamala, or whomever, could take credit for this achievement. All of this, of course, would require media cooperation. And he says, I would remind our general readers that in 1968 to 69, 
The Hong Kong flu killed up to 4 million people worldwide and received nothing like the attention that's been conferred on what so far seems a less dangerous successor. Although I was afflicted with this virus in 1968 and ran high fevers for several weeks, he says I had no idea how widespread the epidemic was. Perhaps the media could make COVID similarly disappear from the public spotlight if their favored party takes the White House bringing back the problem once a vaccine is widely available. The second course, he says, would be to double down on the selectively applied restrictions, continuing to make exceptions for the appropriate leftist causes. Ever larger, more impenetrable masks would be required. Virtue signalers would rush to wear these face coverings as a sign of their party and ideological loyalties. Lockdowns would persist, and if the economy tanks, then no big deal. The media would hide that fact from the public, while the government goes on monetizing its increasing debts. If financial ruin sets in, then this too could be blamed on the party out of power. He says if the public believes that Joe Biden can deal with COVID more effectively than the current government, even if he can't tell his sister from his wife or finish a coherent sentence, then it may be willing to believe other nonsense coming from PC-authorized sources. In any case, given all the financial programs to which the left is now committed, such as racial reparations, socialized medicine for illegals, and a Green New Deal, who would even notice if the economy tanked? Now, Paul Gottfried says, I'm not saying that COVID is a made-up thing which only gets coverage for political reasons. It is a real epidemic, which, judging by his experience with a similar affliction, can leave the infected feeling quite sick for weeks. But... Up to 99.75% of those who come down with this illness are not dying. And unlike the reaction to the Hong Kong flu, safety measures such as social, social distancing may be keeping the infection rate relatively low. He says what is hard not to notice, however, is the increasing polarization of this illness, what seems to be coming mostly from one party and its media friends. This may justify speculation about the future of a politicized health crisis depending upon which party gains the White House this fall. That's an interesting take. All right, so I'm going to shift gears yet once again. Let's talk about why heretics need to be heard. And I I bring this up because there is such a concerted effort right now to silence those doctors who held their press conference a few days ago outside the Supreme Court. They are considered heretics. Why? Because they're not sticking with the official narrative. And, and the people who are like, well, you know, I trust the science. I'm going with the experts and those. Are, yeah, and it's, it's funny. Someone had posted on Facebook yesterday. Well, you know, the reason that uh, we need to, to tear this video down, we need to get it out of the public's eyes is because it will spread like cancer and it could misinform people. And people just like to hear what they agree with and they ignore other things. And I'm like, yeah, wouldn't that apply to what you're saying as well, though? I mean, unless you, unless you have some magical power of, you know, self-control that the rest of us just couldn't possibly conceive, of course we want to hear what we want to hear. But I think those dissenting voices need to be heard. And rather than sit there and, and try to silence those with a dissenting point of view, maybe we should consider it. In fact, maybe we should consider it in the context of doing our own homework and our own research and doing our very best to ascertain the facts and then make up our own minds rather than waiting for some expert, government-appointed or otherwise, to tell us what we're supposed to think. I know, it's a, it's a radical idea, but I think it's one that's actually quite, uh, you know, uh, congruent with free speech. Paul Sloan, writing for SpikedOnline.com, says, Heretics need to be heard. If we silence those who challenge groupthink, 
Who knows what insights we're missing out on? And that is the key right there. He says social media platforms are increasingly acting as moral censors and banning those whose views either contradict official policy or simply offend people. Facebook has barred those it calls, quote, dangerous individuals. People like Milo Yiannopoulos or Alex Jones or Lara Loomer or Louis Farrakhan. Katie Hopkins had a million point one followers on Twitter by the time her account was permanently removed. David Icke's channel was recently deleted from YouTube because he was spreading conspiracy theories about the coronavirus. In fact, I think Donald Trump Jr. just got his uh, Twitter suspended because he shared the video of that press conference of those doctors outside the Supreme Court. Now, in this case, Paul Sloan says it is often talked of as a self-evident good that people should be banned from social media for views which are odious, heretical, or offensive. But he says, in truth, it takes us down a dangerous path. And he says, let's look back in history to see what happened to some whose opinions were considered detestable or heretical at the time. Martin Luther was a German professor of theology, a priest and an Augustinian monk. In 1517, he wrote to his bishop, protesting against the sale of indulgences. His letter became known as his 95 Theses. At first, Luther had no intention of confronting the Catholic Church. He just wanted to set out some scholarly objections to some of its dubious practices. He wanted to reform the Church rather than break with it. Many of his complaints were perfectly valid and did not relate to fundamental doctrine. The Catholic Church could have reviewed the grievances and reformed. Instead, it reacted by issuing excommunications and anathemas. If the church's leaders had listened to his criticisms rather than rejecting them outright, it's possible that the Reformation could have been avoided and countless lives may have been spared from the religious wars which followed. Henry Charles Keith Petty Fitzmaurice. Wow, the fifth Marquis of Lansdowne was a distinguished British statesman. He had served as the fifth Governor General of Canada, Viceroy of India, Secretary of State for War, and Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. He was a pillar of the British aristocracy. By November 1917, the First World War had, waged for th- had raged for three savage years with millions dead. Lansdowne, whose son had been killed in action, became convinced that the war was a threat to civilization itself and that the total destruction of Germany was not a worthwhile objective. Impelled by his conscience, he circulated a paper to the government which he, in which he called for an end to the bloodshed and a negotiated peace with Germany. Now, his proposal was summarily rejected by his colleagues. He invited the editor of the Times, Jeffrey Dawson, to his house and asked him to publish a letter expounding his case. Dawson was appalled and refused. Lansdowne then offered the letter to the Daily Telegraph, which published it on 29 November 1917. Quote, we are not going to lose this war, but its prolongation will spell ruin for the civilized world and an infinite addition to the load of human suffering, which already weighs upon it. We do not desire the annihilation of Germany as a great power. We do not seek to impose upon her people any form of government other than that of their own choice. We have no desire to deny Germany her place among the great commercial communities of the world. End quote. Well, condemnation was swift and almost universal. Lansdowne became a pariah who was shunned and vilified by politicians, commentators, and military leaders. His letter was condemned as a deed of shame, completely at odds with popular opinion, which wanted nothing less than the annihilation of Germany. He was shunned, his career was over, and he was seen by many as a traitor. And when we come back, you're going to learn why he was right. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I'm sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger, but uh, it, uh, it sometimes the break just comes too quickly. I was sharing with you the story of Henry Charles Keith Petty Fitzmarsh, the fifth Marquis of Lansdowne, a distinguished British statesman, one who rightly said, look, we do not need to annihilate Germany as a great power. We don't need to impose upon her people any form of government other than that of their own choice. And we have no desire to deny Germany her place among the great commercial communities of the world. He said this in November of 1917, as the First World War was raging on. And it earned him, well, being labeled a traitor. Because he was at odds with public opinion. And most people wanted nothing less than the annihilation of Germany. But he spoke what he thought was the truth, and it took a while to find a paper that was even uh, interested in publishing what he had to say. And here's the kicker. Most likely, he was right. His views should have been considered. If peace could have been negotiated with Germany, countless lives would have been saved. Furthermore, the onerous reparations forced on Germany with the Treaty of Versailles would have been avoided. And there are a lot of historians out there that believe the terms of that treaty actually laid the seeds for the rise of Hitler and the horrors of World War II. By the way, a parallel story occurred about a half century later. Conrad Kellen was a German Jew who studied law before immigrating to the U.S. in 1935. And he was an intelligence officer working for the U.S. Army and later for Rand Corporation, an influential think tank. In the 1960s, he conducted interviews with or studied interviews rather with hundreds of captured Viet Cong fighters in order in order to interpret the morale and intentions of North Vietnam. Now, conventional wisdom in the Pentagon was that the morale of the Viet Cong forces was low and that additional U.S. forces and bombing would shortly bring about the collapse of the Viet Cong. Kellen's painstaking analysis led him to conclude that contrary to prevailing assessments, enemy morale was high and the war was not winnable. In 1965, he and others wrote an open letter to the U.S. government urging the withdrawal of troops. But his arguments were disregarded by the U.S. administration. Kellen's views were seen as disloyal, misguided, and wrong. With hindsight, we can see that Kellen was right, and many lives would have been saved if his approach had been adopted. And the article also points out nobody would claim that the opinions of Katie Hopkins or Milo Yiannopoulos are as profound or valid as Martin Luther's or Lansdowne's or Kellen's. But similar principles are nonetheless at play. As countless whistleblowers have found, those whose views challenge current policies and groupthink are often rejected and silenced. The Catholic Church and the British and U.S. governments did not listen to controversial views which confronted their assumptions. And the consequences were devastating. And Paul Sloan is suggesting we shouldn't make a similar mistake by silencing those whose views challenge our own orthodoxies. We should allow a platform for contrarian thinkers, especially for those who annoy us. He says free speech should be indivisible. If you ban the likes of David Icke for being daft or Katie Hopkins for being offensive, you will sooner or later ban a present-day Luther, Lansdowne, or Kellen, and they really do need to be heard. I think this may be the, the best thing that I share with you all day today, and it will be in the show notes, so look it up. Paul Sloan is an author, blogger, and speaker. He wrote this for Spiked Online, 
And look, this doesn't mean that you have to, you know, spend all of your time now seeking out those, uh, you know, dissenting points of view. What it does mean, though, is don't be so threatened by a differing point of view that you feel like you have to shut it down. you got to, you know, shut them up and put a gag on them so that you don't have to confront something that maybe you're not ready to confront. You can be secure in your core beliefs and examine an opposing belief without making it your own. If, if there is any characteristic I have noticed among the people who I think seem to have uh, their, their stuff together and are, are clearest on where they stand, it's that they don't have the need to prove anything to anybody. And they certainly don't have the need to silence those who have an opposing point of view. If someone has an opposing point of view, it's like, OK, no, if that works for you, that's great. If they're asked, they may offer some clarification that could help, you know, provide an expanded point of view. But they don't have to bend other people to their will. And all I'm suggesting here is we ought to be that kind of people. That's the sort of folks we should be. It's not easy, though. So I'm not going to pretend that it is. (laughs) All right. Here's one that I want you to consider as well. This is from James Howard Kunstler, The Insane Leading the Blind. This is just kind of a quick recap of the summer of 2020. He says, on our way to becoming a nation of hobos, the Democratic Party's Antifa shock troops brought out the lethal weapons this weekend, hoping to provoke a Kent State 2.0 type bloodbath that would clinch the election for the mummified remains of Joe Biden currently reposing in his basement sepulcher. How'd that work out? In Louisville Saturday, just after lunchtime, the self-styled not-effing-around coalition was mustering for action and inspecting firearms, according to NFA Commandante Grandmaster Jay, when one of said weapons accidentally discharged and mowed down three NFAC warriors, nicely demonstrating the hazards of effing around with loaded weapons. In Austin Saturday night, one feckless BLM mob marcher by the name of Garrett Foster brought his AK-47 to the street party. When he pointed it at a motorist trapped by the crowd, he got blown away to that great struggle session in the sky, the surprise of his life, I'm sure. Kunstler then says in Portland, Oregon, police found a bag of loaded rifle magazines and Molotov cocktails in the nearby park that serves as the rioters' marshalling yard. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler did not attend the evening's frolics at the sore-beset federal courthouse, having successfully subjected himself to ritual humiliation just a few nights earlier. After midnight Sunday, police declared the Antifa actions a riot and made a few arrests. Up Seattle Way, a federal judge struck down the city, city council's order against police using tear gas and pepper spray on rioters just in time for another weekend of rioting. Seattle PD Chief Carmen Best declared, in the spirit of offering trust and full transparency, I want to advise you that SPD officers will be carrying pepper spray and blast balls today, as would be typical for events that carry potential to include violence. Hours later, after Antifa smashed the windows of ground floor businesses, set fire to a construction site, trashed the SPD's East Precinct building, pepper spray and blast balls were deployed, and 45 of the mob were arrested on rioting, assault, and other charges, while 21 SPD officers were injured. Down in L.A., Antifa's broke into the Federal Bureau of Prisons Detention Center. In Richmond, Virginia, rioters set fire to a city dump truck used as a barrier to protect a police station. And so it goes in the insurrection summer of 2020. The nation's attention is averted from the real action taking place as the economy continues to implode and the U.S. dollar slides on the Forex market, meaning that not only is business failing everywhere and livelihoods extinguished, but the medium of exchange that represents all transactions by any remaining business is accelerating its decline toward the target value zero. 
Now, this is unfortunately what comes of the fiscal uh, profligacy prompted by the coronavirus crisis. With the Senate poised to introduce yet another trillion dollars in emergency assistance spending bill that would reimburse 70 percent of unemployed workers lost wages. Over on the House side, Speaker Nancy Pelosi upped the ante to $3 trillion in emergency spending designed to crater the dollar even faster and theoretically assure a Democratic Party victory on November 3rd to govern the smoldering cinder that will be left of the U.S. Have you noticed uh, James Howard Kunstler is not exactly an optimist these days? Okay, just checking. He says the counterforce to that lethal inflation is the choking off of capital flows from the tens of millions of mortgages, car loans, and myriad other obligations that can't possibly be paid in August, September, and October. These tributaries flow into the larger rivers of capital, and when they dry up the entire global banking order, may keel over with those fabled financial weapons of mass destruction, the derivatives, triggering an orgy of counterparty insolvency. When the capital stops flowing, you see the money doesn't just sit there. It vanishes. The question is, can it disappear faster than fiscal policy gone wild can summon fresh money into existence? I guess we'll find out. He concludes by saying the world has gone broke before the Dark Ages, the Plague Years, the Thirty Years' War, the Great Depression. But never broke like this or this badly or had so many people in it who were going to suffer from being broke. The Antifas on the streets of Portland, Seattle, and elsewhere probably don't have collateralized loan obligations and other financial esoterica on their minds. But these things lurk somewhere in the collective subconscious behind the nihilism they've fallen into in these brutal dog days of summer as the insane lead the blind. I know, that's a, that's a whole wheelbarrow full of bummer, and I just dropped it right there at your feet. So here's the question I have for you. What can you and I do? And I'm going to go back to something that I talked about earlier. This is the time to get our own houses in order, which I assume you must have to some degree or you wouldn't be listening to a program like this, right? If you were just, you know, ah, la, la, live in the moment, you know, nothing really matters, you would have found something more entertaining or something that, that, uh, that speaks to, to what you want to hear, that pats you on the back, gives you attaboys and, you know, promises a check with your name on it. But because you're listening to this show, I can only assume that you place greater value on truth than you do on comfort. And I'm going to suggest once again, get to know your neighbors. This is the time for teamwork. This is the time to learn to look out for one another. You'll be a better person for it. They'll be a better person for it. And should some challenge or catastrophe or disaster arrive at your doorstep, you'll be far better prepared to deal with it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.